if you've got a five-year fixed rate mortgage today at 2% and rates go to 6%, that's a tripling of interest rates, that borrower might think their payment's going to triple or worst case, double. Well, in reality, that's not true. If they just do a straight renewal, that borrower's payment's going to go up by about 40%. And if they re-extend their amortization, that same borrower's payment would go up by about 17%. It's still not good news, but when somebody's worried about a payment doubling or tripling and you tell them, worst case, it goes up by 40%, best case, it goes up by about 17%, nine times out of 10, when they get off the phone with that borrower, they're relieved because, again, the fear of the unknown was keeping them up at night. The knowledge of what the numbers actually look like wasn't as bad as they thought. And in the end, as is always the case, knowledge is power and brings relief. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. When will the Bank of Canada stop raising rates? Where did that 2% inflation target even come from? And is the five-year fix the right call right now? These are just some of the questions that I'm going to ask my guest, Dave LaRock. Dave is a mortgage broker in the GTA and writes a very well-researched blog called Integrated Mortgage Planners and one of the most well-read blogs in the country. Dave is a recurring guest on the show and I love having him on because he helps simplify what all of these economists and pundits talk about. He can read the tea leaves and talks to it as a mortgage broker. So if you really want to have intelligent conversations with your clients, you want to know how to guide them, then I highly recommend you check out this episode. I'm your host, Scott Peckford. This is the Island Mortgage Brokering Podcast. We're the number one podcast for mortgage brokers in the country. And before we jump into my conversation with Dave, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection platform that is very easy for borrowers to use. So as you can imagine, when you're trying to get applications from clients, you want to make it easy for them and then also easy for you. And some of the things they've got built in are smart docs. So it knows what documents a client needs based on the application. It's got smart submission notes. It pulls key data from the app and it's connected to something called Lender Spotlight, which is the best tool for researching rates and guidelines. It's extremely powerful. And the brokers that I know who have tried it from other platforms have absolutely loved it. Not all the time, but it's, it has extremely high success rate once people check it out. So go check them out at lendescom Finmo and uh, check out this conversation with Dave. Hey, Dave, welcome back to the show. Hi, Scott. So you've been on the show a few times. I love getting you back a couple times a year. You have a fantastic blog where you share insights on interest rates, inflation, anything to do with the economy, real estate. Maybe briefly just give people who are you, and then we'll jump into a bunch of questions I have, in case they have never heard of you before. Mortgage broker. I've been brokering for the past 13 years. Before that, I worked in lending. While working on the lending side, I worked for a major bank. I worked for the largest non-bank at the time, which was called First Line Mortgages. And then I worked for a B lender. While they were called MCAN now, they were called Exceed. Then they were called XMC, and now they're called MCAN. And I ran their sales and marketing. And then 13 years ago, when the financial crisis hit, I decided to hang out my shingle and become a broker. And that's what I've been doing since then. Right. It's like they have an identity crisis, the MCAN, but great people. Okay. So, and you have a fantastic blog that people can check out. So where would they find that? It's on my website, which is the name of my company is integratedmortgageplanners.com. They can type in moreplan.ca, which is M-O-R-P-L-A-N.ca, or they can just Google my name, David LaRock, and they'll find my website, which we just revamped a couple of weeks ago. So it's all- uh, It's looking good. You got some nice photos on there. I see you standing next to your blog post looking all like official and authorly well, or something. I always had one standing next to the blog post, but it was too old. And it was 10 years old. I 
no longer looked like me. So I had to update that. But no, we also made it a little more friendly for people using mobile phones and came up with a more slick mortgage application, basically just updated it, which was quite frankly overdue. Yeah. You know, I've always made fun of realtors for having that photo that you meet them and you're like, wow, the years have not been kind, but I've been doing the same thing, man. I've literally, I've got a photo that's been bounced around for like, it's probably 12 years old. I'm like, oh, I got to update that. So let's jump into some stuff to do with, so what is the sort of expectation right now for the Bank of Canada in terms of the upcoming, you know, announcements and stuff? What are you sort of seeing or what are the economists talking about? Well, it's a bit of a bouncing ball, Scott. A month ago, the market didn't think there was much chance at all that the Bank of Canada would increase again. And that's when we got the CPI results for June and they showed that inflation was all the way down to 2.8%, which was in sight of the bank's 2% target. Since then, inflation bounced higher. It's now at 3.3%. And I wrote So what caused that, do you think? What is, what's the rationale or why do they think that it actually bounced like that? The biggest reason it bounced is because of something called base effects. The CPI is always based on the inflation data over the most recent 12 months. So every month when you add the latest monthly print, you drop one off. You drop one off. And the ones that were falling off the back end were so crazy high that inflation was falling, not because prices in the here and now were cooling, but because they had cooled relative to a year ago. The average month that we dropped in the first six months of this year was 1%, which for a month-over-month increase is huge. So in the first six months of the year, the average month falling out of the back end of the CPI calculation was 1% each month. For the next six months, it's 0.02%. So imagine you used to see inflation falling because you were every month you threw out the back of the CPI calculation and had a 1%. And going forward, all the months falling off over the next six months will average 0.02%. And we're still putting on the new months that we're adding average about 0.3. So basically, the stuff falling off the back end was lower than the stuff we were putting on, even though the stuff we were putting on was still pretty hot. Now, the stuff falling off the back end is way lower, and the stuff that we're throwing in the front end is still clipping along at the rate that it's at. So the stuff falling off the back end used to be a lot more. Now, it's considerably less. Inflation is swinging higher. It bottomed at 2.8 in June. I wrote a blog post. I showed a table. I explained that the stuff falling off the back end had been the biggest reason why inflation had been falling. I showed that over the next six months, that tailwind is going to turn into a headwind. And basically, I showed a chart that said if we have average inflation of about 0.3 or 0.4% for the next several months, which is what we've been clipping along at already, we're going to end up at the year at about 4.5% for the CPI. So inflation is bottom. It's already back up at 3.3. It's going to keep going higher over the remainder of the year. And if you're the Bank of Canada, all the economists you read, or most of them are focused on job reports, GDP data, Basically, they're saying if there are signs the economy is slowing, then the Bank of Canada isn't going to keep raising. But those guys aren't listening to the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada has said, we will continue to hike rates until inflation gets under control. And more importantly, right now, until inflation expectations are suitably anchored. Because if people think we're going to get higher inflation and they start spending more in the here and now, that fear of higher inflation in the future will actually create more actual inflation in the here and now. So the Bank of Canada is in a corner. There's not much they can do. And they know that inflation is almost guaranteed to finish the year starting with a four. And maybe up at four and a half, could even go back up to 5%. And it's hard for me to imagine they won't feel a lot of pressure to continue raising in light of that. 
And right now, the bond market thought there was no chance the Bank of Canada would raise. Now they're priced a little better than 50% odds they'll increase in September. But the bond market thinks there's a 90% chance the Bank of Canada is going to go up by another quarter point at some point between now and the end of the year. So regardless of whether it happens on September 6th, there is another quarter point hike coming in the eyes of the bond market. 90% probability is close to a guarantee as you usually get. And I think odds are, I'm not saying this with great conviction, but I think odds are the Bank of Canada probably does hike on September 6th. Because if they think they're going to do it anyway, why not just get it over with? And also, the more front-loading they do, the less rate hikes required down the road, and they really want inflation to get back under control by 2025, 2026, which is when all of those variable rate borrowers back in 2020 took their five-year variable rate mortgages at less than 2%, based on Kip Macklin's guarantee that rates were going to stay low for a long time. So they'll be highly motivated to getting rates down by 2025 when all of those mortgages, which are basically hanging around TIF's neck, based on everybody listening to the confident promise he made, when those ones come up for renewal. Just talk about payment shock. Those are the ones we really have to worry about. Right. But the variable rates, though, unless they're static payment, they would already be climbing, right? Like They would, but... More than two-thirds of variable rates are static payments. So the majority of them are static. Right. Okay. And so this obviously creates a lot of anxiety in customers. And if you think about sort of your typical customer, what kind of questions are they asking you? What's keeping them up at night? Well, borrowers with existing mortgages are very worried about what will happen at renewal. And they imagine, quite frankly, that it's going to be worse than it is. And that isn't meant to minimize the fact that people are under financial strain and it is a tough time for borrowers. But... Much like in the movie Jaws, the scariest scenes in Jaws were when the camera was just showing black water and the John Williams- Playing that music, that na 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 yeah, the music was terrifying. Because the imagination was making it scary, right? We didn't see an actual shark. We just heard the shark. We thought about the shark. The imagination in our heads made things way scarier than any picture of a shark ever could. Borrowers who fear what will be happening at renewal in many cases, when they're empowered with the knowledge, with an actual real-world example of how these higher rates will affect them, are actually relieved. For example, if you've got a five-year fixed-rate mortgage today at 2% and rates go to 6%, that's a tripling of interest rates, that borrower might think their payment's going to triple or, worst case, double. Well, in reality, that's not true. If they just do a straight renewal, that borrower's payment's going to go up by about 40%. And if they re-extend their amortization, that same borrower's payment would go up by about 17%. Still not good news, but when somebody's worried about a payment doubling or tripling and you tell them, worst case, it goes up by 40%, best case, it goes up by about 17%, nine times out of 10, when they get off the phone with that borrower, they're relieved because, again, the fear of the unknown was keeping them up at night. The knowledge of what the numbers actually look like wasn't as bad as they thought. And in the end, as is always the case, knowledge is power and brings relief. Yeah, I have another question for you. So this is for a friend. You know, I have a friend who has a question about their mortgage. Asking for a friend. Okay. A friend. And the friend may or may not have taken variable rate mortgages. And so if you've got clients right now that have variable rate mortgages and they have not converted into fixed yet, what would your conversation look like for them? So if I call you up and say, hey, this friend of mine, his name is Steve. <laughs> Peckford, and he wants to know what you would recommend if you're in a variable rate right now, given that you just said that there's a very, like, we're probably going to see rate hikes to the end of this year, maybe even again next year, if this inflation stays at four and a half percent, four percent, I can't imagine they're not going to keep going. What do you think? Yeah. Well, Scott, these are the toughest conversations to have, first off. 
the first thing I tell anybody is I don't have a crystal ball and I'm going to tell you what I think. And it may sound like I know what I'm talking about, but the reality is as much time and effort as I put into answering this question in a responsible way, I don't have a crystal ball. And ultimately, you're the one who has to live with this decision. So I'll tell you what I think, but I don't want to project more confidence than I have because these are volatile times and there's a lot of uncertainty. So that's always the way I start the conversation. The next thing we talk about is are you sleeping at night? Because some people can tolerate a certain level of risk. Some people took variable without really appreciating the risk. And now that they're living through it, they just don't want to have the uncertainty anymore. And for those borrowers, the academic question of where rates are headed is immaterial. They've got to go for peace of mind. They should lock in. They should take the best deal they can. If they're okay with the fact that payments are fluctuating and they can afford higher rates, albeit they don't like paying higher rates. That's me. I don't like it. I can afford it. But I also feel a little bit stubborn. Like I chose this and now I'm like, I'm going to just, you know, not budge. Oh, that, yeah. might be, well, that might be stupid. For a guy like you, Scott, I wouldn't convert right now. I mean, the reality is you've already borne the cost of the variable. And to lock in right now after rates have gone up as much as they have, I mean, locking in today because you wish you'd locked in a year ago is compounding mistake, right? It's saying, I wish I'd done it a year ago, so I'm going to do it now. The question isn't, should you have done it a year ago? That ship has sailed. The question is whether you should do it now. And the reality is the Bank of Canada has increased its rates to the sharpest level in modern history. We've seen the largest rate hikes, sorry, the largest fixed rate increases that we've seen in the past 30 years. These things are going to slow the economy and they are going to bring inflation down. The question is, how long is it going to take? The market thinks we'll start seeing rate cuts early next year. My personal opinion is that's optimistic as the bond market has been for some time now. I think it'll probably be in the second half of next year. Again, not super confident in that, but that's my read of the tea leaves. So I think you've probably got to be resigned to the fact that for the next year, you're probably going to keep paying a rate that's similar to the one you're paying. But if you've got prime minus one, which a lot of the borrowers who got the attractive variable rates previously have, you're paying about 6.2. You're not going to be getting a fixed rate that's a whole lot different from that currently. And in many cases, the rates you can convert to are higher. So you're effectively baking in another series of rate increases if you lock in a fixed rate today. And when the Bank of Canada does start cutting, if you're still in a variable rate, you're going to immediately benefit down the road. If you lock in today, you miss out on all that potential benefit down the road, and you face a penalty, which if rates are falling, will increase over time. So to me, if you've ridden it out in variable, and you're still getting sleep at night, and you're not in a position where you just can't afford to pay, and if the conversion rate you're offering isn't so punitive that it's like hoisting another two or three rate increases on top of yourself, I would stay the course. I think ultimately, variable rate borrowers have borne the cost, and the benefit of a variable rate is that when rates fall, you benefit immediately. And I think that benefit will accrue. I think we'll see that day come. It's taking longer than we thought, and inflation is stickier than we thought. Those things are certainly true. But ultimately, if you went variable, you've borne the cost, I would stick it out and expect that at some point, the world will make sense again. All these rate hikes will slow the economy. Inflation will come down. And ultimately, those variable rate borrowers will see some savings. Right. Okay. Thanks. You've alleviated some of my fears. Yes. To me, I feel like I'm ride or die right now. It's variable. It's like, it's, <laughs> ride or die. I like that. that's what I'm going to do, man. So if you've got a new customer coming in today and you're having conversations with them, it seems when I talk to lenders and even some other brokers, a lot of them be selecting shorter terms. Are you saying, hey, this is a five year, but you're looking more at three years and two years? What is your sort of typical client looking at doing? 
Well, again, five years looks like a long time to lock in after a big peak like we've seen. I think most people expect that rates will fall in less than five years. So the five year has lost some appeal unless you're just super conservative and you don't want to overthink it. And there are people out there who like the peace of mind that comes with the five year. If they're asking my opinion, I think the three-year fixed strikes the right balance. Three-year fixed rates aren't that much higher than five-year fixed rates today. One- and two-year fixed rates come with big premiums. So when you're paying a big premium with a short-term rate, you've got a couple of risks. Number one, you're starting out with a premium, so you're incurring a lot of cost, which you may not recoup. Because the second risk is that if you take a one-year, for example, what if rates don't start dropping in a year? What if you have to renew at another high rate? Ultimately, then... The more short-term you go on a fixed rate, the more aggressive the bet. And I think the safe middle of the fairway pick is a three-year fixed right now because I think three years is enough time for rate hikes to exert their impact on the economy and for inflation to get back to a level where the bank can can start cutting rates again. The higher variable rates go, the more I think the greater the probability they come down sharply on the other side. There are some variable rate borrowers, some borrowers dipping their toes back into the variable rate waters right now. I think over the next five years, variable rates will outperform today's five-year fixed rates. I think that's a pretty reasonable thing to believe. But again, if you don't like the volatility and you want peace of mind, I think the three-year fixed rate probably is that middle of the fairway pick. It's not perfect. You probably end up overpaying a little. I think rates may come down in less than three years to a level where you'll wish you were coming up a little sooner. But we're talking about safety and peace of mind. And to me, when you put all the trade-offs together, I think the three-year offers the best balance. Right. Okay. You had said to me before turning the recording that a lot of your clients are not necessarily struggling with cash flow. I think you have a pretty affluent client base, or at least you know they're stable jobs or whatever. But so if somebody is having cash flow challenges, aside from you know the typical, okay, can we refinance your mortgage? What other things have you seen or recommended people do in order to like improve that? Well, refinance is a big one. We extend the end if possible. In some cases, if the mortgage is insured or insurable or if it's registered as a collateral charge, there is an opportunity to re-extend your end without even having to break the mortgage. What I tell borrowers who are really struggling is you got to call your lender. People think when they're struggling, they've got to hide it from everybody. Don't let the lender know. Worst thing you can do, you got to call the lender and tell them. They know that times are tough. They know the rate increases that we've seen. If you communicate with them and open a dialogue, number one, you might be surprised at how flexible they're willing to be. If you're open and honest, and you're willing to provide a budget and have a more detailed conversation and clearly demonstrate that, you know, it's not just you don't want to cut back on your latte budget. You are actually being materially impacted in a negative way. People who call their lenders many times are pleasantly surprised at how they're willing to work with them. Don't wait until you're missing payments. Ultimately, that's really the key is call your broker, talk to them evaluate your options, figure out if you can refinance, if you could requalify, whether there is the option of re-extending the M. And once you talk to your broker, the advice may be call the lender. And if the advice is to call the lender, you should do that right away. And just be open and honest. People know these are tough times. And ultimately, right. lenders make money when people pay their mortgages. And if you can keep paying your mortgage, and if they give you some relief to get you through a bit. They don't want your house, man. And they don't no. want the hassle of selling it. Okay, so. People let, think let's that move. lenders want to take yeah. their houses. It's not true. They want to take your monthly payment. That's all they, they want. want exactly. They want your payment, not your house. They want your payment, not your house. So you said two things, job numbers and GDP. So explain those, why you're paying attention to those. And you said something to the effect that the Bank of Canada is, doesn't care or they're not paying as much attention or you don't think they are. Or did I get that wrong? 
let me clarify. Inflation is too high. The Bank of Canada will not be swayed by the fact that the GDP and, and employment numbers are weakening. Ultimately, they've said, when push comes to shove, our mandate is to maintain price stability, which we define as a CPI inflation rate of 2%. And ultimately, we come to a point where we have to inflict economic pain, and it's hurting the economy, and it's hurting employment. But we need to do it to bring inflation down. Make no mistake, we will do it. We have to bring inflation down. That is our mandate. And certainly, I believe them when they say that. So if that helps clarify what you said originally, yeah, yeah, that's what I think they're saying. The mistake a lot of people are making is they're assuming that when we see weak job numbers, for example, last month, we got an employment report showing a negative jobs print. We lost about 7,000 jobs. That was after like six months of crazy job growth. So overall, we still have a super tight labor market, and that concerns the Bank of Canada. And average wages are still growing by 4 or 5%. And union contracts are being negotiated, and further wage increases are being baked into contracts, which extend years into the future. So there's a lot of employment cost inflation that is still concerning to the Bank of Canada. But boy, read economic takes on last month's week employment reports, they said, oh, the economy's slowing, this is it, Bank Canada's not raising anymore, rate cuts are just around the corner. I mean, that's a very lazy take. The reality is the employment market is still too tight and the Bank Canada is not going to look at one week job report or two or three week employment reports and say, inflation's on the way back up again and we're worried about inflation expectations, but we don't want weak employment, so we're going to capitulate. No way did they say that. That is an uninformed or lazy opinion, and I'm trying to be diplomatic when I say that. Right, right. Why don't you get like Butler, be the angry blogger? <laughs> That's can... a great podcast. I listened to it. It is a great podcast. I listened to it the other day. I was like, I love listening to her on and chat with them. Okay, so if inflation grows faster than GDP, then technically the country's getting weaker, right? But if GDP outpaces inflation, like why this two to 3%, do you think that they'll ever change that? Like, where did they come up with that number? And maybe you don't know the answer to this question, but should it be different than what it is, I guess? And, yeah, and tell so, me like I'm 10, dumb it right down for me. Okay, so 2% is an arbitrary number. There is no magic behind it. Basically back when the 2% measure first came out, I forget which central bank it was, one of them just started using it and everybody copied it. And then like with a lot of things, it just became standard practice. But there is no clearly defined methodology behind why 2% is that right temperature. Of the shouldn't it, shouldn't inflation be somehow related to GDP since it's like the growth and the cost of that growth? Is that making sense? Or am I like simplifying it too much? No, I mean, the reality is GDP is economic output. And if GDP is going down by 5%, then any inflation is bad. Whereas if GDP is going up by 5%, then 2% inflation means that basically you're ending up with positive growth. The reality is there'll be a lot of debates. They're starting. There'll be a lot of debates about whether 2% is the right measure. Maybe some people now think we should go to 3%. The Bank Canada has squashed on that. Every time they're asked the question, they say 2% is the number. Again, if their political masters tell them the number is 3%, then... Lo and behold, that'll be the change. It's kind of like, you probably heard this story, but how all of the train tracks have the same distance between the tracks. And it came from the Roman the carts. Chariots. Yeah. Roman chariots, the carts that were built in Europe had to be built because the Roman chariots basically built these ruts in the road. And if you didn't build the carts in Europe that width, they would just get them beat to pieces. And so they just used the same framework for the railway. And so to me, we have these things that in place that we go, like nobody asked the question, why? Like why 2%? And why is it just an arbitrary hanging number instead of like, should it be related to other factors like GDP, like 
shouldn't there be a bit more to this than just i mean you can see the effects of you know rampant inflation on the economy is terrible like when you see what happens in like south america and stuff but that number i guess i'm just like i always like questioning it was their central bank and they all copied it i would say though scott inflation is actually not necessarily the worst thing for people in debt inflation is a tax on savers and reduces the real cost of debt i've heard that yeah the best way to yeah it's actually good for borrowers because your debt becomes technically 500 grand is not worth what it was so right. it's actually yeah. If you knew that inflation was going to be 5% the next 10 years, then you should run out and get the biggest mortgage you could possibly get and lock in today's rates for basically that 10-year period and come out way ahead. And by the way, the governments who set the inflation target are massively in debt, right? The Canadian government has record levels of debt. They're their own best customer when it comes to debt. So a little bit of accelerated inflation also is eroding the real cost of that debt. And if you're the government trying to decide if you should bump up the inflation target and we should have more inflation, the fact that you're massively in debt and it's reducing the cost of the debt probably isn't lost on you. If you're a homeowner, you benefit two ways. Because number one, inflation erodes the real cost of your debt in the future. And number two, House prices generally do go up by at least the rate of inflation. So the value of your asset is pretty much inflation-proof. be controversial to hear that, hear me say that. Well, certainly the cost of goods will go up to rebuild that house. And so like there may be a dip because of a surge in inventory, but that doesn't mean the overall trend over time should be up because labor costs will go up and so will, you know, the supply of materials will go up because yeah, of inflation. House prices have for a very long time at least matched the rate of inflation over any sort of extended time period. And the debt is eroded and the value of the property is protected and unlikely. I mean, you can see a one or two year drop in house prices, but look at a chart over 10 or 20 years, house prices will least follow the rate of inflation. So if the value of your debt's being eroded and your house price is protected, that so let's go inflation. Just kidding. Well, yeah, I'm going to get it. I'm going to start a podcast. I heart inflation. But if you're just a homeowner or just a borrower, then in isolation, it's not as bad as you might think. Right, right. I think I heard Milton Friedman, that economist, say he talked about that, but he also talked about maybe getting his name wrong. But he talked about how inflation also like increases wages, which increases the tax base. So if all of a sudden people's wages go up, they flip into the next tax bracket. And so now the actual taxes go up. It's a way to increase taxes without you even realize your taxes are going up. It's like, oh, I, you know, you got, because yeah. all these people getting raises right now, they're like, yeah. And then to get to the winner, file their tax, like, oh, what the heck? The real benefit is not as good as I thought, because now I'm in another tax bracket. Right. That's exactly right. When you have a progressive tax rate, where basically the more you make, the higher the percentage of taxes that you pay on an incremental basis, the government can raise taxes without having to tell you, you used to pay 18%, now you're paying 20%. If everybody makes more and slides into the higher brackets, then the tax revenue base increases, even though the tax rate stayed the same. Our government has increased taxes and seen the revenue base grow, but the reality is you have more political cover if there's wages are inflating because people aren't as Because people, they're, they're not doing the math and they don't realize that wage increase is actually not as much net in their genes because they just, you know, necessarily because of the increased taxes. Yeah, it happens in their sleep. Yeah, yeah. Crazy, crazy. So if you were in charge of all this, I know that this is a crazy question. How would you try to fix this? What would you do? I mean, you know. I don't think the Bank of Canada has any choice. I think the reality is that they have to get inflation down and they've got to keep rates high for as long as it will take for that to happen. 
And ultimately, that means we're going to experience economic pain. Because the rate hikes have a lag, we haven't really seen the pain yet. For all the media headlines and for everybody talking about it, the real pain hasn't shown up to the extent that we're going to see. So it's going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. And you know, the other thing I worry about, Scott, is people assume when the economy slows that inflation is automatically going to drop. And it'll be great if that's the case, because we'll be experiencing the pain of slowing economic growth and all that comes with that. And ultimately, if that means rates start dropping, then there'll be a bit of an offset. The Bank of Canada's rate hikes don't control all the prices. For example, oil prices, energy prices have a huge impact on overall inflation. And the Bank of Canada can hike rates till the cows come home. They're not going to affect global energy prices. If global energy prices are rising, and there's good reason to think that that'll happen, again, longer conversation, but basically energy companies have been returning profits to shareholders, not investing in expansion, and energy needs are rising. So basically, any increase we have in demand is going to push prices higher. So a whole lot I can say about that. If energy prices go up, they pervade through all kinds of yeah, because yeah, energy is used to, for everything. So like it's going right. to push the price of everything up, right? So if the bank can is hiking rates and the economy starts to slow, but energy prices are too high and that pushes inflation higher, what do you do if you're the Bank of Canada? you got to bring inflation down. You can hike rates all you want. It's not going to affect global energy prices. Maybe you stop hiking rates because you say hiking rates isn't going to make this any better. So we don't want to make it gratuitously worse if it's not going to improve things. But you're certainly not getting rate cuts. So the worst case scenario is we get a scenario called stagflation, where you still have inflation that's too high, but you don't have any kind of offsetting growth. And you're kind of stuck in that case. And, you know, you don't read much about that. The narrative you read in from most economists is the bank can will hike rates, the economy will slow, and then they'll be able to cut because inflation will come down. But the reality is bank account hikes rates, economy slows, inflation doesn't come down because not all of the important prices are controlled by BOC rate hikes. Then all of a sudden you end up in a scenario where we've got slowing growth, but the bank can can't cut rates because inflation is still too high. That's a real risk. I've written about that in my blog a few times lately. I think it should be talked about more. Right. So what you're saying is there's the bear market, the bull market, and the stag market. So there's really a third market that could, you know, affect things. You know, there should be like down in Wall Street, have a stag. It's like this is the probably worst of both worlds. There was a question I wanted to ask you about. Where is your primary market and what is your sort of expectations on how this may or may not affect housing prices? Well, I mean, I do do business across the country. I'm licensed in Alberta. I do business in many provinces, but most of it is in Ontario, and most of my Ontario business is in the GTA. And the reality is, Scott, we've got a supply-demand problem. There's way too many people trying to buy houses, and there's not enough houses. So yes, interest rates are higher, affordability is impacted. We could see some drop in house prices, and we could see a flood of listings. All of those things are risks. Any buyer should not minimize those risks over the short term. But we have record levels of immigration. We're adding too many immigrants based on not the amount of houses we're building. And that's a guy who's very pro-immigration. But I still think our immigration minister and our housing minister should sit down for a cup of coffee and have a conversation about this. Hey, yeah, how many places do you need? Oh, we don't have that many. Yeah. Right. Well, where are we going to put all those people? I mean, like, you're not anti-immigration or racist if you ask that question. I mean, the reality is immigration is great for Canada. We've always been a welcoming country to immigrants. But boy could put a whole bunch of pro-immigration people off immigration altogether if you create a housing crisis because you don't have any plan for where you're going to put people. And the reality of high levels of immigration, 
as you mentioned before, Scott, replacement costs, the fact that labor costs, material costs are all going higher. You can't build houses more cheaply. The cost of building houses is going up inexorably. A lot of that has to do with fees that are imposed by governments. It's hard to build in this country. It's expensive. It's cumbersome. So no, I mean, sadly, we're in a housing crisis. And I don't think there'll be a long-term drop in prices. I don't think any drop in prices will be short-term. Certainly, there's downward pressure on prices when rates have gone up by as much as they have, and affordability has been impacted by as much as it has. But longer-term fundamentals relating to immigration, supply demand, cost to build new houses, there's just too many things that are ensuring way more demand and supply to make me think that any sustainable drop in house prices, certainly not the crash stuff that people on Twitter go on and on about. I'm sorry, I don't think that that argument is credible. Right, right. Do you have rental properties? No. Okay, so if you had rental properties, so you wouldn't try to exit them. You'd be like, just if you can keep them going, you'd be better off. Like, I mean, at least I think that. Like, I would think it'd be better to keep them than to ditch them. I mean, because you may not get you may not get better buying opportunities. Like, you may liquidate some cash, but will you get better buying opportunities? Maybe, maybe not. I wouldn't want to own a property with a negative cap rate and with rent control. Basically, if your property falls under the rent control rules, and not all of them do, by the way, but if your property does, you can't do 10%, 2% rent increases with 6% mortgage rates. It makes no sense. And if I had a property with a negative cap rate, I'd probably think about selling, but is now a good time to sell? I mean, there's lots of trade-offs, Scott. The reality is For a long time, people buying rental properties in Toronto have had to accept negative cap rates and conditions that I don't find attractive and that I want to participate in. I think there are lots of better things to do with your money, quite frankly, bluntly put. Again, there are individual scenarios. Sometimes people buy places because you know, their kids are going to university in that town and they'd rather buy a place and have the kid live there with his friends right. or her friends rather than pay rents. I mean, there isn't a blanket answer, but personally, I don't think rental properties are overly attractive investments right now for the simple fact that any investment you have to contribute to each month to stay afloat and you're buying them on the bet that the property will appreciate in value after the kind of appreciation we've seen over the past many years, I don't think that's a good bet. Right. Okay. Last kind of word. What's your sort of last piece of advice for mortgage brokers right now in our current market? Talk to your clients. Don't worry so much about the fact that your revenues are down. Do stick to your knitting. Do your work. Grind it out. Know that in the past 40 years, there's only been like six months where mortgage debt outstanding didn't increase. We don't need a perfect market in order to be able to make a living. These are tough times for everybody. And Build your reputation, do right by your clients, invest in your portfolio of clients, call people, talk to them, build your reputation. And ultimately, if you're committed to this industry, you didn't just jump in because you thought it was easy money. Like you said at the beginning, Scott, how often do people think that things are easier than they are? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, the reality is you're going to make money the hard way like you would in any other industry. And ultimately, that's the key is hang in there, work hard. And the sun will shine again. These are tough times. The industry is going to get smaller. If the pie shrinks, but as a result of the industry getting smaller, you end up with a bigger piece of a smaller pie, you're probably not that worse off. And when the pie grows again, you'll still have a bigger piece. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Thanks, Dave. Where can people find you online? My website's moreplan.ca. They can Google my name. And yeah, I do my Monday updates and podcasts like this, which are always a pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks, Scott. 
Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. So Dave had some great sound bites in this episode that I think you can use in your mortgage business. So if I were you, here's what I'd recommend. You can go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com. You can set up a free power search account that lets you keyword search all of our past episodes, including Dave's. And when you search the episode, it's all transcribed. So literally everything that he says. And so if there's any scripting or language or anything that you like, you can literally copy paste it you know, make it your own. And if you're looking for ideas, the other thing you can do with something like this is you can take that content. So go in, set that account up. And then you're looking for content to put on your social media. You're looking for sound bites. This episode is just full of them. And you can take them, put your own name on them, put your own spin on them. But it makes it a really easy way for you to do that. Go check that out at ilovemortgagebrokering.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you know somebody who you think should be on the show, who's interesting, smart, shoot us a note, send an email to us at scott.mortgagebrokering.com. My team will get back to you and maybe we'll have them on an upcoming show. Thanks for listening. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.